Hello, and welcome to Ask Dr. Dawn. The opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers, and this is a program intended for education and entertainment. It should not be construed as a substitute for a medical consultation. Last week, I promised you nootrophics, and we're going to launch into these cognitive uh, improvement agents. But before we go there, I want to just take a moment and wish all of you the best. I know it's a challenging time right now with uh, <laughs> the weather that we're having locally, and urge you to stay patient, stay calm, take your time, because it's at those moments when we rush that accidents happen. And right now, among other things, friction is an issue on the roads, as well as being really alert for any indication that uh, you know, dirt might be falling into your path ahead of you. Maybe you want to slow down and be very, very careful. Uh, there have been some pretty significant accidents. If you can work from home, of course, I'm strongly encouraging you to do so. I did come to the uh, station and to my office today, largely because I have no power at home. And it's very hard to prepare this program without some juice and the internet. So all of that being said, uh, and reminding you that this is a show intended for entertainment and education, let's start by talking about uh, briefly all of these very expensive and minimally effective and fairly dangerous drugs. There's now two that have been approved for Alzheimer's disease by the FDA. These are both monoclonal antibodies. And the side effects, as we talked about last week, include brain swelling and bleeding in the brain. Not two things that just aren't things that I want any of my patients to have. Now, I wanted to take a look back at other safer agents for treatment and also for improving cognitive function. When we're upset, our cognitive function decreases. When we're sleep-deprived, when we have jet lag, all sorts of things can slow us down and make it harder to work, uh, make it harder to think. And so let's talk about some things that are safe and interesting. I have several patients who work over the hill in Silicon Valley who've told me that friends of theirs, and I am, of course, doing air quotes when I say friends of theirs, I have a friend, Doc, who's wondering about microdosing with LSD. He knows some people who are doing it and telling him it's great for concentration. Well, LSD was invented by a chemist who was playing around with making synthetic ergot alkaloids. Ergot is a general name for a variety of alkaloid molecules that are made by a fungus that likes to grow on rye. There's a general term for drugs that improve mental functioning. They're called nootrophics, or maybe otherwise pronounced nootrophics. Uh, we'll be discussing this class of agents in some detail as part of today's program, but we're going to start with the class of ergot derivatives because that's what got me going on digging into this topic. Uh, I found in my own files uh, an article I had pulled and put into the Read Someday category. Well, someday came. So let's launch into the ergot drugs for starters. These drugs 
include ergotamine, which is largely used for migraines, bromocryptine, which is used to block prolactin secretion from the pituitary gland in cases of benign pituitary uh, tumors that produce prolactin, uh, nisergaline, which is used in vascular disorders such as uh, cerebral thrombosis and atherosclerosis. It's also used for arterial blockages in the limbs. It's used for Raynaud's disease, which is a condition uh, I'm wondering if uh, I should think about trying it in the wintertime, vascular migraines, and also retinopathy. Hydrogen is the last drug that we're, uh, and also the one we're going to talk about at length, and this is used for treating dementia. And the use of this in cognitive disorders is backed up by a Cochrane support. The Cochrane Report is a widely respected service that does literature reviews on the effectiveness of various drugs and therapeutics. And they reported in a study they did, well, almost 20 years ago, that hydrogen has been used to treat patients with either dementia or uh, age-related cognitive problems. Uh, Hydrogen may offer benefit at doses of 4.5 4.5 to 9 milligrams per day, 3 milligrams three times a day being uh, the dose that was most commonly used in the United States. Higher doses are routinely used in Europe. Uh, and they found possible benefit to younger people and people in hospitals in when they reviewed the literature. So uh, there was also evidence for its use in vascular dementia and uh, for that, doses uh, would need to be higher than the 3 milligrams a day that's currently approved in the USA. But as I said, 9 to 12 milligrams is routinely used in Europe. Now, this drug's been around for 40 years, and uh, the circumstances of its effectiveness have been uh, still not really adequately researched and defined. It's 40 years old generic and costs a 20th of the price of these new agents, but it is not likely to be researched further because it is old and generic and therefore not worth the money to explore further. What we do know from the studies that have been done over the years, and there are many, is that it appears to work better in younger people in higher doses, and it has several known effects. It increases the blood supply to the brain, just like ginkgo biloba. It increases the oxygen delivered to the brain. It enhances the metabolism of brain cells, and it protects the brain from low oxygen levels. And that's one of the reasons that this drug and the uh, nisergaline are used in treatment of stroke because it protects the brains from low oxygen levels. It slows the deposition of age of a age-related compound uh, called lipofusin in the brain and in the retina. It also prevents free radical damage uh, to brain cells and is especially beneficial in increasing signaling in the hippocampus, which is, of course, the seat of memory and the area that shrinks in advanced Alzheimer's disease. As I said, because of its ability to protect tissue from oxygen shortage, it's used in several European countries to treat shock and strokes and heart attacks and drowning. Uh, and it has the unusual property of stabilizing oxygen levels. So it increases the levels of oxygen if they're too low, but it lowers them if they're too high, and too much oxygen 
is very toxic to the cells. It's like running a pump when it's dry. You're going to actually damage it very badly. Studies have been done in cats where they caused strokes in cats who they had on EEG monitors. And the cats had been pre-treated with hydrogen, survived the stroke with functional brain waves 45 minutes out, which is when the study ends, and they euthanize the cats and look at the brain da- look for brain damage, which they didn't find, compared with the control rats who didn't get hydrogen and all died within 15 minutes and showed substantial neuronal lo- damage in their brains. This agent increases dopamine and serotonin. This is a class effect. All of the ergot alkaloids affect dopamine and serotonin in different ways. And this means it may also be a very good treatment for the dementia caused by Parkinson's disease, known as Lewy body dementia. And there's also good evidence that hydrogen stimulates the growth of dendrites, which are the connections between neurons that normally decline with age. There was another really interesting study that showed that hydrogen preserved the number of mitochondria. Uh, there's, as we age, there's routinely a loss of mitochondrial functioning, which is ultimately the thing that causes neurogenerative disease in the first place. And the nice thing about hydrogen it, is its low toxicity. It's very low toxicity. I wouldn't give it to someone who had schizophrenia or very low blood pressure or a very slow heartbeat because it can aggravate these things. It does, in fact, have uh, a therapeutic value as an antihypertensive in uh, certain contexts, but I wouldn't be worried about causing brain swelling or brain bleeding, and the effectiveness of this agent is easily as good or better in Alzheimer's patients as these new FDA-approved drugs that are like $5,000 a month. There's also a sublingual version that melts uh, under the tongue, and that is helpful because the most common side effect of this agent is an upset tummy. Oh, yeah, and lest I forget, unlike microdosing uh, LSD, this drug is legal. But there's a number of other non-prescription agents that I'm going to pivot to now that have shown promise and are considered effective and safe nootropics. One of the best ones for uh, improving brain functioning is theanine. This is a unique amino acid. It's exclusively found in green tea. And when you take green tea and ferment it to turn it into black tea, you get rid of all the theanine. The fermentation process destroys it. You can also purchase it as an extract in capsules or as a synthetic. And it raises levels of GABA, GABA aminobutyric acid, and it raises them at a level comparable to the pharmaceutical uh, Paxil. But unlike oral GABA, theanine easily passes through the blood-brain barrier. Uh, Doses that have been documented are uh, up 200 to maybe 1,000 milligrams daily, and benefit is fairly quick within a few days. So you can tell if it's going to work. The hydrogen might take more Uh, more like a week or two before you're going to see a clinical effect. Now, acetyl-L-carnitine is something that a lot of my patients ask me about. It's often marketed as the drug to improve brain function. What it does is it increases transport of fatty acids into the mitochondria, which could and should lead to increased cellular energy. And it 
actually may also work by speeding up a, um, a an enzyme that activates coenzyme A. It's a precursor to acetylcholine, so it enhances the levels of acetylcholine, which is considered to be the neurotransmitter of memory. Many of the pharmaceuticals that are used to treat Alzheimer's disease act on acetylcholine by suppressing the enzymes that break down um, an, that break down acetylcholine, an enzyme called acetylcholine esterase. And you may be familiar with acetylcholine esterase because most pesticides act by inhibiting acetylcholine esterase, leading to abnormally high levels of acetylcholine in the brain. Uh, a good natural example is a plant called jimson weed. Uh, Datura uh, is, uh, or angel's trumpet, is also uh, contains a substance called scopolamine that can lead to psychosis, psychosis, uh, psychosis changes in pupil dilation, a really bad trip, dry mouth. Uh, are are the classic symptoms. Uh, there's a there's a saying about this type of poisoning. The patient is hot as hell, uh, blind as bat, and mad as a hatter. Acetyl-L-carnitine is going to increase acetylcholine, but not anywhere near the levels that you would get with an acetylcholine esterase inhibitor. So it's safe. And it's generally taken in doses of 500 to 3,000 milligrams daily. And it acts pretty quickly. But while we're on the subject of acetylcholine, it's not a bad idea to take choline, which is found in eggs and lecithin. And uh, lecithin is probably the cheapest source. Uh, acetylcholine is uh, the, the choline is the active ingredient in lecithin. And it's known to pass the blood-brain barrier, and it get and phosphatidylcholine is the best one for getting into the brain. You can buy that as an extract, uh, as an extract, and the proper dose there is probably starting at about 500 milligrams. Uh, if you want to just take choline, which is also available as a supplement, you'd need about a thousand milligrams three times a day. But you have to convert that. So if you do that, you're also going to want to take a gram or a thousand milligrams of panthothenic acid, which is vitamin B5, because that's how you're going to get that choline converted into acetylcholine. Another over-the-counter agent is DHEA. Now, this is a steroid hormone that's made by the adrenal glands, and it is protective of neurons. Uh, doses of DHEA that show this neuro uh, effect, uh, neuroprotective effect range from 50 milligrams to 2,000 milligrams. But don't just jump in at the high dose. It also is great because it has anti-obesity, anti-tumor, and anti-aging effects. But it's the neuronal protective effect that is relevant to this discussion. It's particularly true that you have to go start low and go slow, particularly true for women, because this, this agent can be quite agitating if you jump right away into a high dose. Uh, I usually start people up at 25 milligrams, maybe 50 for a man, 25 for a woman. And every six weeks, we check a level and we increase by 25 milligrams every six weeks. And we watch the serum DHEA levels. And what we're looking for is uh, 
DHEA levels found in someone in their 20s. And you can look up that dose online. Uh, I mean, you can look up that level online and your doctor or your <laughs> or your outlaw lab in Florida that will uh, send you a voucher to Quest or LabCorp will uh, let you order your own levels. Florida is definitely the Wild West when it you won't need a prescription to order labs from them. And it's being done by the same folks that yours truly orders labs from. It, they're just a middleman. Those folks in Florida, however, have the license to let you be more of an active agent and don't have to ask permission from your doctor. Um, another repurposed pharmaceutical to discuss, and this one I, I'm finding very interesting, uh, is vasopressin. Uh, this is sold as desmopressin acetate or DDAVP here in the United States. It's available by prescription. And in terms of being a nootrophic, it has an almost immediate effect on learning because it helps imprint new information in the memory centers of the brain. Uh, now, other drugs that do this are Ritalin, amphetamines, cocaine, and LSD, but they do it by causing a release of vasopressin in the brain. The problem with this is too frequent use of these drugs is going to use up your brain's supply of vasopressin, and you're going to end up with a sort of crash, a long-term jet lag that um, anybody who's been on a speed run will tell you is not pretty and not fun. So this isn't a button you want to push all the time with the DDAVP, because I'm a little worried that you might have an effect of down-regulating the vasopressin receptors. Uh, and if you're going to use it as a nootropic, you're probably going to use fairly high doses about two sprays from the nasal spray bottle two to four times a day. So I would be select I would recommend being selective about this. This is a neurotransmitter uh, and there's really no difference between neurotransmitters and hormones. If you give too much of a hormone or too much of a neurotransmitter, the body's going to adapt down its response and you could end up shooting yourself in the foot. So Definitely use with caution for this off-label use. Uh, its FDA-approved indication is actually for the treatment of bedwetting. And at high doses, it can also interfere with electrolyte balance. So you have to use it with caution in the elderly, and in particularly in those with impaired kidney function. Because when you get those, that, those potassium and uh, sodium and calcium levels messed up in the blood, bad things happen, not just to your brain, but also to your heart. And another thing you'll find all over the internet, which I want to strongly discourage, is purchasing any of these agents abroad, like in Mexico or other other countries, and online. Uh, while, there are, while these products are over the counter in many countries, counterfeiting in those areas is a very serious issue, and you're going to see that in particular in the border towns. We're going to stay on cognition uh, for the next few stories. This one is a cognitive decline associated with anesthesia and surgeries in older patients. Now, I've had a number of patients who over 65 who had to have uh, surgery, and there were a few studies that suggested that gas anesthetics were particularly problematic 
for people who already had some level of neurodegenerative disease. And of course, this is in people who are being tracked for cognitive dysfunction. And uh, presumably, they are the canary in the coal mine when it comes to this to uh, surgery and anesthesia because they will have less cognitive reserve. So their loss of function will be more apparent. And so there's a, a there's a let's call it a syndromic name for this. They're called post-operative neurocognitive disorders. And there's a, a bunch of them. Um, but post-operative cognitive dysfunction, which is a prolonged state of impairment, is the thing we're going to talk about at more detail here. Delirium and uh, confusion uh, and inattention after surgery, these are also very common things, but they are limited in time and the recovery is generally complete. But people who have a vulnerable brain are being very badly stressed by surgery and anesthesia. And we don't really quite know exactly what's going on. Uh, is it neuroinflammation as a result of just stress? Are, is it vascular? Is it uh, preclinical dementia that's just uncovered by the surgery? Is it a covert stroke? One study showed that 7% of, what was this, 1,000 people over the age of 65 uh, had an, had a, a subtle stroke with surgery. And of course, this was associated with long-term cognitive deficits, unsurprisingly. But m- those strokes may not be picked up without looking for them. And a lot of times, we don't. So about... Of people 65 years and older who have surgery, about 65% of them experience some level of delirium and confusion as they wake up, and about 10% develop long-term cognitive decline after non-cardiac surgery. The number for cardiac surgery is much higher, but then again, your back is up against a wall with most cardiac surgery. After discharge from the hospital, these people are more at risk for worsening functional health, and this post-operative cognitive disorder is uh, a very significant problem. So I have always wondered if it was the gas anesthesia, but recent research seems to point to any kind of surgery. So they uh, looking at the recommendations uh, and the findings here, uh, it doesn't, the studies have failed to show a statistically significant difference between regional and general anesthesia. And so there's not a compelling evidence to suggest that a specific anesthetic agent is indicated uh, or to be avoided. But there is uh, something called a processed EEG. And I'm really wanting to see if this is uh, going to develop as a standard of care. It seems like a really, really good idea. It's used to minimize the anesthetic dose during surgery. And we all know that older people are far more likely to have problems. EEG guided anesthetic depth, in other words, get the person as deep as they need to be so that they're under, but don't put make them any more uh, under than that, and use the EEG to tell you what, when you've got them deep enough. Uh, what that found was a substantial decrease in uh, delirium 
and also uh, post-operative cognitive failure. And so for me, that is still indirect evidence that the gas anesthetics where you're knocking someone out are a are an issue. So I'm not quite ready to change my mind about telling people if you can use the spinal anesthesia versus a general anesthesia, go ahead and do it. But I also don't want to minimize the fact that going through major surgery is hard on everybody. One study was done that looked at trying to reduce postoperative delirium. And what they did was uh, orientation, cognitive stimulation, and early mobilization. So reduce the narcotics, get them up and moving rapidly uh, using preoperative exercises. So doing exercises that in, that got the brain in shape, targeting memory, attention, problem solving. And what they did was they almost cut the rates of delirium in half. Now, this was delirium, which is really easy to measure because you can just check orientation. But I think that while this doesn't do a measurement of post-operative cognitive decline, there's every reason in the world to believe that doing cognitive work before your surgery and getting your brain actively functioning, kind of dusting off the synapses, so to speak, is also a really good idea. And there is some evidence that uh, anesthetics may uh, increase amyloid deposits, but uh, now that evidence may it may be an indirect effect of inflammation, and we'll be talking a little bit more about that uh, later on in this program. But the 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 association between anesthesia, surgery, and the acceleration of neurocognitive decline is a real thing, and we need to be proactive and really sure that that surgery needs to happen because we're taking a risk with the person's brain and. Uh, we've only got one of them. There's no redundancy, so to speak. Well, there's plenty of redundancy when you're young, but as we get older, that redundancy declines. Uh, Let's go to our email. And uh, this email is uh, one from uh, Jerry. And Jerry writes, uh, from the pages, anemia, from the pages of the book Anti-Anxiety Food Solution, Uh, He quotes, pyroluria is a faulty synthesis of heme, resulting in elevated levels of cryptopyroles or byproducts of hemoglobin synthesis that have no known role in the body. What's elevated is levels of another molecule, and uh, this one's called hydroxyhemopyrolin 2-on-1. And uh, further quoting this uh, book, Jerry says, this molecule attaches to zinc and vitamin B6, which are then excreted in normal amount in higher than normal amounts, resulting in deficiencies. And he also says that this compound inhibits heme production, which is why people with pyroluria often have low levels of iron. Uh, he wants to know if there's a genetic basis or a test. Uh, he has anemia, and um, Jerry, I think this is one of those old memes that rattles around on the internet. It's very uh, controversial. Uh, it's a natural medicine thing, but uh, one of the studies that was requoted multiple times on various websites says that 11% of the population is affected by this. And uh, some flags for me about why I think this is mm, wrong, <laughs> not to put too fine a point on it. 
Uh, only alternative labs are you doing it. And I did a Google Scholar search that turned over only one actual peer-reviewed paper on pyroluria. It was a literature review, and it found that it didn't. It basically did not find that the literature, the scientific literature, actually supported it. So this meme goes all the way back to um, the fifties. There was a thing in the fifties called orthomolecular psychiatry, and uh, it would be, I would say, something that just never it really got supported and got dropped in science and probably doesn't deserve to be supported. If you're worried about anxiety, which is the major uh, the major thing to worry about here, um, just take supplements. You know, just take um, take some extra iron. Take, you'll be fine. Take some zinc and some B6 while you're at it. I, I don't think it's worth getting this pyroluria test. And if there's something wrong with heme synthesis, you're going to see elevated levels of urine proporphyrin. And this is, urine, uh, urine porphyrin testing is easy to get. And if there's something wrong with heme, that's where it's going to show up. And that is, uh, a, that is a valid thing to be looking at. Uh, so I really think this is not a thing. So we've got a couple of callers. So hello. Hello, this is Tony. Hi, Tony. Hi. Um, hi, I love your show. Thank you. I'm calling... Um, because I, I saw an article recently about hearing loss and dementia. Um, I, my dad's getting a little older. Um, he's, um, he has his hearings, um, degenerated a little bit. Um, he, I went out shooting with him one time, shooting guns, and, um, hearing got a little worse after that. I was just wondering, I know, like, my, like, I'm younger, we listen to a lot of stuff, like, with the buds right in our ears, mm-hmm. I was wondering how that how that related to um, age, like, um, and what I could do to, like, I don't know if there's anything that I could do for my dad. What I should look out for in terms of just um, like in maintaining my hearing. <laughs> okay, so there's really so, two questions well, there. What can we do for dad? And mm-hmm. uh, let me start with the first with the first premise that you asked about was. Is there a link between hearing loss and dementia? And there absolutely is. And it's not just because people who have hearing loss appear to have dementia. They really have a loss of brain function. And our brain neuroplasticity is really amazing. Studies have shown that people who are blindfolded, this was, of course, done on graduate students at a university, uh, people who are blindfolded uh, after about two weeks of wearing a blindfold continuously, large portions, as much as 25% of the occipital cortex, the part of the brain that's developed that and associated with seeing, uh, about 25%, the edges, if you will, of the occipital cortex actually stop functioning for vision and are taken over by hearing. And the, the hearing uh. acuity improves and most importantly, the localization, you know, the ability to tell what direction something is coming from. I don't mm-hmm. know if you've seen any of the videos. There's a wonderful YouTube video of a kid who's blind and he's skateboarding and he's clicking with his mouth. Yes. 
and he's he's using echolocation to spot obstacles in his path, like a bat. Mm-hmm. And Amazing. this is uh, someone who became blind very early, and for whatever reason knew to develop that. You've got the stereotype of the of the blind man with the stick. Part of the thing the stick is doing is changing the sound. So if, if you're walking towards a wall or a large object, the sound's going to reflect back at you, and that allows you to recognize that you're heading for a wall. So this is a really, I thought they were just feeling their way, way with a stick, actually, but it, it actually is echolocation in many people. So if that can happen to vision, you can see how it could happen with hearing. So your uh, hearing is so intimately tied with memory and brain activity, and right there, the temporal lobe is one of the places where you hear. This also one of the places that deteriorates most in Alzheimer's. And so everything's kind of connected in both directions. Like if you smile, if you force yourself to smile, you, the part of your brain that that appreciates happiness actually wake, you know, has more activity. And the part of your brain that experiences sadness has less activity. I mean, this you're, you're just changing your facial muscles, but that has an impact on your emotions it's re- it's crazy that the that the cause of, it's it's crazy that the directionality works both ways but it clearly does we've got strong evidence so he needs to have good hearing aids he needs to gotcha. he needs to work on lip reading and so he should also have good classes and he should there's tons of good lip reading videos and he should work on his lip reading not necessarily because he, his hearing aids don't work but the act of learning lip reading and working on that is going to be an anti-dementia drug for him. I and it's see. going to... That's, that, that's that. Using the eyes that, and the neurons that... Using the... <laughs> yeah. Ox, yeah, stealing, basically stealing uh, neurons from uh, that aren't being used for, for example, echolocation, because you certainly lose that. You lose mm-hmm. directionality with hearing aids. Uh, there's some very sophisticated ones coming around that I would recommend. There's uh, one hearing aid, and I don't think it's much more expensive than the other ones, but the cool thing about it is that you can run it off an app on your phone and you can turn on, you can direct it so that the sensors only pick up what's in front of you as opposed to what's to the either side of you. So you can, you you can, when you're walking around, you know, you want your, your peripheral hearing. When you're at a party uh-huh. and you're trying to concentrate and there's background noise, you want to tune out the background noise. And that's one of the things you, you lose with hearing aids. Mm-hmm. So they don't... Definitely even just like walking up to a retail counter, it's difficult to... Like the lip reading and the hearing aid would definitely help a lot with that. Exactly. Like, um... Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So those are things that you can oh. do for your dad. For you, it's, you know, dude, turn, get yourself an app that uh first of all get a decibel meter you can buy you can download a decibel meter and you want to stay in the safe hearing zone so before you go into a club uh or a concert you put you you mm-hmm. measure the decibels and if you're in the red zone in the environment you know don't pay the cover don't pay the cover charge don't go in you know because you have a family history of hearing loss right and so you don't want to give yourself a experiences. You want to get noise-canceling headphones if you do go shooting, and those run about 50 mm-hmm. bucks. They're not, they've, the technology has gotten quite cheap. 
and those are more effective than just muffling headphones. So, and so you want to, yeah, well, actually I would get over the ear. I would get the over the ear ones for shooting if you're Mm going to, if you are a shooter, but but the in the ear ones are fine for ambient and you want a governor on the decibels that are coming into your ear because where, uh, where you're going to do damage is when you're trying to listen to music in a noisy environment or a podcast in a noisy environment and you crank it up to hear over the background noise, but those noises are additive. And the way your ear works, you've got these little hair cells in there, little cells, with, and they're hairs. They're fragile. And you're just rubbing those puppies really hard, and they break. Mm-hmm. And once they break, they're broke, and you've lost a frequency. So you, you will see dropouts, kind of like um, a spectroscopic image of another star where you can tell what elements are there from where the, light's, where the light isn't and where, uh-huh. where it's being absorbed. Well, you stop absorbing the sound and you get dropouts because you've lost a channel. Kind of think graphic equalizer, yeah. right? So you, a, a graphic equalizer. Definitely. Equal, yeah. I, I've taken a test. Um, uh, it was an online test, but at like the 4,000 to 5,000 frequency range, I like had a lot more trouble hearing than a little bit above that. And then like down to... Everything else seemed normal. That that range, I like, couldn't hear um, until it was in the half loud setting or something like yeah. that. So, that so you don't want that to get worse, and you need to protect mm-hmm. yourself. And those frequency, there's going to be a tendency, and that's in the speech range. So, like I said, podcasts in a noisy car, for example, you know, and if you can't, totally. And so that's just you've got to be really prudent going forward, uh, so that you don't end up in trouble yourself. Definitely. Well, I really appreciate the answer and and the that um, thing about the the um, hearing aids with the directional. I will, I will look that up because. Um, well, I, I appreciate it. Thank you so much. You're very very welcome. All right. Bye for now. Let's go back to the stories that we were, uh, the thread that we were on, and. I was going to talk about tau protein and Alzheimer's, but I think we're going to kick that one down the road till next week because I've only got 10 minutes left and I have an important story uh, I want to tell, talk to you about and that's uh, Medicare Advantage scammers and a recent uh, article published in the New York Times that you may or may not have seen. But Medicare Advantage is not Medicare and the fact that they get to use that word, uh, I'll First of all, say that this we can thank uh, 2003 and George Bush for this, and this was a uh, a way of kind of stealth privatizing Medicare. And guess who wanted to do that? Well, private business, of course. But let's talk about insurance for a second, because I I really think the root of the problem is that it's really easy to steal. With insurance, insurance is the only product product that we buy, and we don't know if it's any good until something bad happens, which could be years from now. We were talking about, uh, I was talking with a friend about fire and flood insurance, and we're having a sort of insurance crisis in California right now because you know the purpose of insurance companies is to make money. Now, we don't have auto dealership commissioners 
or big box retail commissioners. We have insurance commissioners. And that's because insurance is one of the easiest scams in the history of scams. Even before the Ponzi scheme was invented by Alfred Ponzi, of course, uh, with insurance, well, you send them a check every month and you're covered, right? You have a piece of paper that says uh, you're covered. That's really different from going to the store, maybe, and buying a a toaster. When you get home, you plug it in and you know right away if it works or not and you know where the store is. And you can go back or if you bought it online, get a refund or... Uh, give them a bad review or at least, you know, get some satisfaction back. Back Insurance is the only product in existence where you buy it, but you really don't know if it's going to work and whether or not it will be there for you years later when you finally need it. Uh, thousands of insurance scams were run across the United States in the early 20th century. And basically, they would open up an insurance company and sell policies for a year or two, collect the money. And close up shop and move on to some other town. Take the money with them. When you tried to collect on the insurance, the insurance company was gone. It's a little reminiscent of some of what's been happening with uh, the blockchain and the, you know, web currency. You know, it's like, can happen like that too. Uh, So if nobody, until somebody dies or until a house burns down, you don't know if your insurance is any good. And health insurance is such an easy and lucrative way to commit fraud that every state decided eventually that anybody selling it would have to be licensed and there would be a level of uh, bureaucracy and surveillance to make sure they didn't just close down and walk away with the money. And Medicare Advantage is basically a variation on this kind of scam. It's privatized insurance. It's sold under the Medicare name. It allows corporations to sell it. Uh, that once they've sold it and you've paid the policy, you can. it allows them to challenge every single doctor's recommendation, every single drug, procedure, or surgery, and also refuse to pay for hospitals and doctors that are out of network. Medicare doesn't have out of network unless it's Medicare Advantage. And, you know, people sign up at 65 for Medicare Advantage. It's cheaper. They're typically not sick. They've watched an ad with Joe Namath or someone, and they have no idea of the hassles and hoops and troubles they might have to jump through when they do get sick. Uh, This New York Times expose uh, talks about the widespread and persistent problems. There are tens of millions of denials issued each year for both authorizations and reimbursements and uh, inappropriate denials of services and payments. In fact, uh, there's a uh, there's a I, I went attended a lecture and then later read the book, and I'm Wendell Potter I think was the name of the author, but I'm blanking on the name of his uh, of his book. But he would had worked for the insurance companies, and this was his expose, and he was instructed as an uh, to deny everything the first time around, to deny all uh, reimbursement and to deny all prior authorizations. And then only on the third or fourth application, after you've put the doctor and the patient through a lot of delay and a lot of extra work, would you approve it? And only then, basically, because you're required to, by the regulators, have a hearing and go to an arbiter if you if they keep it knocking on the door. If you just have regular Medicare 
with a Medigap policy, those are heavily regulated. That covers the 20% uh, that Medicare doesn't. You're not going to have to worry. You can use any doctor or hospital in the country who takes Medicare, and nobody is going to come back and try to collect from you or force you to pay for something you thought was covered. And uh, your doctor won't have to do the uh, pre-authorization days. The New York Times article said 18% of Medicare Advantage patients were dis- denied beside, despite meeting Medicare coverage rules. That's eight. That's 1.5 million payments for all of 2019. Not 1.5 million, 1.5 of the payments. In some cases, the plans actually ignored prior authorizations that they had issued, and they ignored adequate documentation and said it wasn't adequate. Uh, Sometimes this even prevents people from getting needed care. And here's the thing, something that they don't tell you on TV, and this is super important. When you sign up for Medicare Advantage and hold on to that policy for more than a year, it can be extraordinarily difficult to get back on real Medicare or to buy a Medigap policy. You can't switch out of because Medicare basically makes you buy in and pay through the nose, and it can be impossible to get a Medi-Cal pol- uh, Medigap policy at that point. So think twice. In fact, think three times. In fact, don't do it. You really, really don't want to go with Medicare Advantage. Now, just wrapping up in the last couple of minutes we've got, I want to remind you that you can go to my website, askdrdawn.com, anytime during the week and click the Contact Us button and ask a question. Maybe this last story or the one I'm about to give you makes you think about something and you're just like, oh, wait, I want to ask about more or I want to talk about my aunt. Anything like that. I'd love to hear from you. So one last study, this uh, just give you a quick abstract. We know that fermented foods are good for you. This was an uh, article that was published in Cancer Epidemiology, and they went through all available studies uh, in, the, uh, in a PubMed uh, going up to 2018, and they found the studies had almost 2 million uh, participants and about 40,000 cancer cases, and they found a decreased cancer risk, uh, about a significant, actually, about 15%. So if, if your baseline cancer risk is 1, you're, you were at 0.86 in the cohort studies. Yogurt consumption in particular was uh, associated with decreased cancer risk uh, at about 0.81 across the board for all cancers. And uh, Fermented dairy foods significantly decreased bladder cancer, colon cancer, and esophageal cancers. Eat that yogurt, folks. And actually, colorectal cancer was found to be associated with cheese intake, decreased colorectal cancer with cheese, which is also a fermented food. But yogurt was the best overall. So fermented dairy foods reduce your cancer risk. What a wonderful way to close out this episode of Ask Dr. Don. Go and eat your yogurt. Well, that's about all for this week's podcast. 
please go to AskDrDawn.com for news about our future plans. Or follow my tweets at at AskDRDawn. For now, this is Dr. Dawn saying so long and stay healthy. Ask Dr. Dawn is brought to you by Jiva Media. Production and editing by Charles Bansky. Music by John Scoville.